the instinct of so many people is to say that working class men are more violent than middle class men. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't see working class men making us go to war. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Associate Professor Stephen Roberts of Monash University, which is in Australia. Steve, it's absolutely amazing to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and a bit nervous as well. <laughs> oh, don't nervous. It's all good here. Steve, we're going to be talking today with you about young people, masculinities, and possibly social generation theory. Yeah, something like that. I think that sounds the kind of things I'm interested in. Yeah. These things are something that me and Tiso been talking about particularly more recently. And obviously Tiso has been researching and writing about masculinities for a long time. So hmm. when we were reading your stuff, I called T and I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. <laughs> this is like the stuff we talk about like every day. So when we first started reading your stuff, Steve, the first thing I thought is like, like the masculinity thing stuff, it always jumped out to me because I feel quite important right now, especially anecdotally when I'm outside in the street or speaking to some of my mates or in some of the, the places where men perform masculinities on a daily basis. To look at them and you think, well, why has this happened? That's what I think. They don't think that. <laughs> I think that. How do you get into masculinity or try to study it or try to understand it? Similar to yourself, right? Like um, masculinity is visible everywhere. We see it in our mates' performances. We see it in our colleagues gender performances we see it on the street we see it on the tv we see our various prime ministers in both countries presenting their gender in a particular way you see president trump in his uh, debates in the last couple of days presenting a particular version of masculinity so i came into masculinity studies through a back door because my my phd was nothing to do with masculinity even though it was about men and then what happens is of course when you study men you can't help but fall over masculinity because as you're describing it's right there it's in your face it makes you think what the hell's going on here? What's what's this difference? How did people come to behave in that particular way? So as I was working my way through my PhD, which was actually about like youth transitions, I got more interested and in, after I finished, actually, I got more interested in masculinity theories. So I'd moved away just a tiny bit from youth transitions and was yeah, interested in masculinity. And it just stemmed from there, just thinking about like the, the group of people I studied for my PhD was young men who work in retail, right? And the literature to date had always said that working class men can't do service sector jobs and they don't do service sector jobs and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, oh, that's weird because like the data seems to show that they, they do. So I went to explore like these men's transitions and so on and didn't really think about it in terms of masculinity at first, but then yeah, afterwards started thinking about it in terms of masculinity. And the, the real thing that stood out to me was that like masculinity, the way working class masculinity especially is described by the literature doesn't seem to hold anymore and that like so it just raised all these questions for me that was interesting like what's going on what does it mean why are they why is it documented in this way that working class men are like this if they're not necessarily like this so just like threw open a bunch of questions that i thought were interesting but then it's also super important because i think we're at a moment again using trump as an example where we see this kind of highly problematic version of masculinity being in the biggest seat of power in the world and yet at the same time i think there's an opportunity to think about masculinity as having a potential to transform and being the source of transforming lots of the problems that it causes as well. 
So I think there's a, there's a million things that I probably want to think about and talk about. For, from the literature, I always get a kind of monolithic block of what they call masculinity. I think, that, I think the term is like hegemonic masculinity. Even that's a problematic term, isn't it? Like it shows kind of, no kind of nuance because if from the spaces I sit in, I see a lot of guys who are who don't fit that traditional stereotype of what masculinity is. What do we mean by hegemonic masculinity? Put that one on me. Damn. Okay. It's actually really co- complicated, right? Because in lots of ways, uh-huh. masculinity is a slippery thing to nail down. So masculinity itself is like, it's described in the literature by the most um, famous and influential uh, scholar, Raywin Connell, as being a configuration of practices. But she also talks about this configuration of practices as being not static. So it changes through time and place and all this kind of stuff. And in locality, it can look different. But hegemonic masculinity is this idea of um, like a dominant kind of culturally approved form and an aspirational form of masculinity. And the reason that she says that it's important to think about this thing as being hegemonic, oh, and the hegemonic part, of course, is that it's, um, it's achieved, its power is achieved through consent, not through force. The, the interesting thing about it is that Connell says that this form of masculinity is the, the answer to why we have patriarchy. Like it legitimates patriarchy. So it's super problematic. It's not just in and of itself that it causes damage, but it stabilizes unequal gender relations. So masculinity is always relational, always relational with, uh, with, with women and femininity and stuff. But then within masculinity, you've got this whole range of different types of masculinity and hegemonic is at the top. Like it's the dominant form that other people aspire to and sit in relation to all the time. So it's actually, um, Connell says it's, it's impossible for people to achieve and embody that uh, hegemonic masculinity, actually. But nonetheless, it um, has an impact on, on the world in a major way. See, when me and T talk about masculinity, which we do quite a bit, I obviously bring my own like lived experiences of it, objectivities, biases. I do sometimes, I think as a woman, find it, I think it's because it's linked to so much emotion for women like navigating masculinity. But I've definitely in the last few years become more pathetic, but also understanding of the structures that create hegemonic masculinity. And I've definitely started to understand men as more victims of masculinity rather than always being willing participants of it. Like, mm. I really feel like in reading more about masculinity and talking more with Tisa about it, that I've started to understand it as like a, a hostage situation for so many men. And so many men don't get a lot out of masculinity. And I definitely think whether it's been episodes we've had on our Alternative to Women's Hour, particularly one I'm thinking about with Alison Phipps, like I've been more susceptible to sort of carceral logics of understanding masculinity because of my own experiences of the violences of it. And actually, like that isn't a good way of dismantling things like masculinity and hegemonic masculinity. Like it's about the dialogical talking about it but Mm. also recognizing it is not something that all men are willingly participating in obviously there are some that are of course Mm. like power is power understanding those nuances I think particularly for women can be quite difficult but I think we are getting to the stage as you say Steve where we're seeing such visceral examples of it that it's becoming more there's more opportunity for us to talk about it in this way yeah definitely I think um just to pedal back just a tiny bit, I think what's really important is that hopefully no one in the, in our field is ever going to kind of say either hashtag all men or hashtag not all men. Like That's not actually the conversation here. The conversation is, <laughs> is about establishing like proper form, like a proper understanding mm-hmm. of the function of masculinity that people aspire to and how much damage that can do. As you say, 
Chantal, as you say, to men and to women, right? And to everyone, people of all genders get affected by the construction yeah. of masculinity. And the, the, you know, the way that we're supposed to, as men, aspire to be this like, um, like breadwinner and protector and all this bullshit, right? Like that, that forms as an idea that causes problems for lots of people. And, um, and it often mm-hmm. manifests in violence as well and violence against women and, uh, and children and, um, and anyone. So, but it also manifests in men's suicide and, and men's mental health mm-hmm. problems as well. So it's a multifaceted problem that needs to be unpacked and explored and, you know, some people think we need to do away with gender altogether. Others think we need to like think about transforming our commitment to t- certain types of being and certain types of being a man, I guess. When you draw out the examples of like, again, Trump. So like I said to you earlier, and I preach that when I used to research the far right, I came into what they call the men's rights movements and the manosphere, which is online. And it's a very particular image of what a man is. Mm-hmm. So uh, a breadwinner, they're usually quite hyper-aggressive. It is a very, I guess, yeah, it's a very binary representation of gender. Yeah. And, and definitely with the man being on top in all spheres, economic, politically, socially, that kind of pushback is not from a small percentage of, of people. It's quite a large people. And like Trump, if Trump represents that movement, what does it say about mas- this kind of tension between masculinity? Because people will talk about in the literature, like there's a crisis is that is this the crisis that we're seeing, Steve? Before you come in on that, Steve, I'd like to add another layer to those people that attract this type of quote unquote men's rights bullshit. Sorry, um, <laughs> is there's a group of men, the group of men that are not necessarily sort of like hyper violent, hyper masculine. I find them more scary than I actually find the guys that Tiso's talking about because I actually am more familiar with those guys because I've grown up around yeah, them. Yeah. I know them well. But when you get these like these often white men, middle class, have not necessarily had quote unquote much struggle, but have not necessarily had that much success romantically within their lives and whatever, and have created this <laughs> Yeah, no, no. We, we, all, we all know people that are, you know, I think we've all seen people that subscribe to that um, that characterization. Like in, in Connell's formulation, there's like hegemonic masculinity on yeah. the top, everyone wants to be like them. And if they can't be like them, they end up being the kinds of things you've just described, right? They they want to be like traditional men and they want this control over women and all this kind of stuff, but they can't have it. And that's like incels get described in this way. But just outside of um, Connell's work, actually, some people do talk about geek masculinity. So it's a thing. Like, yeah. you know, like and, and the stereotype actually is like that among gamers, like video gamers, like these are like the geeks. That, they, they, play yeah. women, they, they give a hard time to women all the time. And it's kind of stuff. So there's, there's that version of masculinity that relies on mastery and technical expertise of the gaming space, but also relies on kind of, um, yeah, bash, bashing women, like metaphorically, at least uh, in some ways. But yeah, the subordinate thing is interesting as well. So you've got hegemonic masculinity. And then underneath that, uh, Connell says we have complicit masculinity. And I think that's that's what you're talking about there as well, that people that are invested in the idea, this problematic traditional idea but um, don't necessarily, can't necessarily be it. So they just support it and they benefit from its operation anyway. And then beneath that still, we have like what Connell calls subordinated masculinities and marginalized masculinities. And subordinate masculinities, like they're kind of pushed out of the benefits of masculinity, if you like. And then marginalized masculinities are those that can do some of the things that hegemonic does, but can never be recognized as legitimate forms. So um, people of color, working class men as well, like they're, they're seen as being, they can still perform masculinity, they're still part of the spectrum of masculine behaviors and practices and configurations and so on, but they can't actually achieve that, the power of the hegemonic mm-hmm. white middle class male, and never will. 
But I think it's also more complicated than that. I think there are lots of nuances. And I think that the danger is that we end up thinking about categories and operations of masculinity and translating that onto specific men that we know. You know, like there's a difference between men, lived, embodied creatures and the configuration of practice of masculinity and the way it's organized in society and it produces particular effects. Steve, that's what I was going to say, but not in a very clever way like that. I was going to say, basically, when I, when I read, when I got into debates about masculinity and when I got into literature, it's very conceptual. Yeah. It's very abstract. When I'm looking at arguments between Coconnell or Christensen and Jensen, it's very tight points. And I'm like, yeah. well, this is not how, it, in the real world, like, that's not how I see masculinity configured, right? I might see some parts of it, but in the real world practice, that's not, when I look at most men, most men are not even aware of what they're doing. When I speak yeah. to them about masculinity, they, they don't grasp. It's just a normal way of being, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do we cross that section between the actual real-world practice and this kind of wealth of literature that deals almost exclusively in, in that conceptual world? Yeah, yeah. It's difficult. Like, I think lots of people do try and apply it, but they often apply masculinity theory as a way to explain performances of negative masculinity and that's kind of where it ends and I think what I'm interested in is what I try and do with my work as well is think about the way there are productive possibilities for masculinity performances and also that those productive possibilities don't only emerge from white middle class progressive men you know like I, it makes me mm. sick actually and it's the thing that's driving my um, my recent writing and hopefully my next book that I'm going to be writing with my colleague Carla Elliott is about how working class and black men and men from the global periphery actually have productive ways of being men that don't rely on the dominance of women, right? But what we hear all the time is that, well, what I feel from the literature is that middle-class white men are the paragons of virtue and we should all follow and, and learn from them. And then they kind of slag mm-hmm. off people who are not as good as them or whatever. And I, like, yeah, I, I don't like that kind of stuff. And I think that version of masculinity theorizing is limited and weak and problematic but I don't think that means that Connell's ideas are, are wrong. They're obviously very influential and very powerful. But I think there's an opportunity to start thinking about how we reconfigure the stuff that she's describing as being this conceptual apparatus that we use to understand people's performances. But I want to look at people's mm-hmm. real performances, real engagement with the idea of their gender. Where did they learn it? How did they learn it? How do they unlearn it? Like, that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. How can we all learn from that and push towards a better and fairer society that's not just reliant on some middle-class white academic saying this is what a good masculinity should look like and you should follow it it's that's absolutely so that's so powerful Steve and I'm so excited for that book honestly like we love this stuff and just reminded me of an episode we did with Adam about fatherhood in the Caribbean it's just so powerful like if you haven't listened to that episode yet guys listen to it and check out Adam because he's absolutely I am brilliant. definitely going to listen to that it. and there's so many amazing examples across the Caribbean in particular that talks about dispelling these yeah gendered scripts and masculinities but One of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking, and it's something that we covered at the time when we were doing sort of more in-time podcasts during the summer, Hmm. um, is how those of us that have been subordinated by masculinity need to find better ways of talking about it as well as men. Now, what I mean by that is, so during the summer, when we had 
the far right come to London as they have done at various points throughout history. This is not a new thing, but in response to Black Lives Matter, there were so many people characterising these predominantly men, although some women were at these events organised by the far right as white working class men. The problem with that, just from a pragmatic anti-racist point of view, is that you're not actually describing the majority of people that are there. The majority of people that are there, if we're just talking socioeconomically, are middle class, they own their houses, they have families, they're from the suburbs. They are motivated by a hegemonic masculinity of power, not through class. Like, it's so important. The people that I was seeing engaging in these kinds of the ways of talking about yeah and and also football hooligans as well characterizing football hooligans as only working class white men and it's just not true and so from a pragmatic point of view that sort of frustrated me because actually you're missing out such a large proportion of the group that we need to be fighting against Mm -hmm. and also it lets middle class people off the hook again as being complicit in these structures do you think that overemphasis on white working class males in literature comes from the idea of the kind of shift from industrial to post-industrial straight that transition so i think i think there's a quote in one of the from literature that learn to service rather than learn to labor that yeah. the idea that that working class men have lost their traditional jobs and so perform masculinities in various ways and it's it's, it's always aimed at that kind of white working class it never speaks yeah. really to m- white middle class jobs really yeah yeah I- i've tried to be really vocal on this stuff yeah. Because I know the people they're talking about. Like, I have them in my family. I grew up with them. I know there are working class people who are racialized as white that are racist. Like, I have been around the majority of my life. This isn't me coming from a place of not understanding that those people exist. But what we should be interested in as people that are looking for hope, possibility and anti-racist futures is power. Who has the power here? And it is the men that I was describing before. And I think... What Tito's response to what I just said is seems like a very lazy way that academia seems to be describing what is happening and has always done. And there's so many people that have written about this stuff for a long time. And again, I feel like there's complicity on for people that are that have been victim to these types of masculinity. Complicity being that we're not describing them in ways that recognise power, basically. So yeah, please tell us, break it down, Steve. <laughs> I wish I did like that, Dan. <laughs> Don't miss anything. Don't miss anything, bro. <laughs> Look, I think you, you, yeah, you hit something on the nail on the head. Absolutely, with something that I think, which is that um, it's white working class and white working class men. I use that in a political way, right? They're used as a scapegoat for the problems of of masculinity more broadly, and they're definitely people say like you know. The instinct of so many people is to say that working class men are more violent than middle class men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't see working class men making us go to war in wars that we shouldn't be going to, this kind of stuff. You know, the, the, the violence of the middle class is massive and massively underreported because we obsess around whether or not working class men are, are more violent. And actually, I think both the literature, but also my life history tells me something similar to you, Chantel. Like, I've been around people, like, I'm not white, and I was brought up in a, a village, I guess, but even that had about three or 4,000 people in it, of 99.9% white people. And my experience of racism was almost exclusively outside of that white community. Because I'll tell you what, working-class people are good at. Compassion, community, mm-hmm. like, those kinds of things that we don't, we don't hear about that and we don't write about that enough. 
And then what happens is, what well, sometimes white men, the description from like economists or people that are interested in the labor market say, oh, they got this fragile um, masculinity in crisis, and that's why they're bastards, right? So they, they treat people this way because the economy doesn't suit them anymore. I think that's a, a disgusting, deflective tactic. And I think it, yeah, it removes our emphasis on who holds power in whose interest it is to um, tell those stories and say, you know, that's the problematic white working class over there. And you see that with Brexit as well. You see that with like, so yeah, a lot of working um, class people voted Brexit, but they were told the stories of this ethnic other who's coming to take your job. And like they created this crisis for working class people, but not all working class people voted that way. So I think it's like- Most of them didn't vote. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, yeah. Anyway. So I, and I mentioned that in my book, actually, the abstention from the voting yeah. from the whole system is, is the most interesting trend. But it's, a, it's another example of how, yeah, like the powers that be make the story about the powerless. Yes. But then at the same time, I think it's also important to, we always recognize that of course, men in working class communities some men also um, engaged in, in violence to, to one another, to themselves and to their partners and families and women in their lives and so on. So those things exist, but so does this possibility for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, well, just wish the Academy would give more credit to so-called lower class people. Um, as being the mm-hmm. people that might produce that change in the world that we want to see. One of the stuff in literature that came up was how masculinity is displayed in places like Mozambique, that the traditional view of like masculinity in Africa has been like a very traditional one, but there's also ones that are quite caring and nurturing. It's juxtaposed to other forms of masculinity. They don't exist uh, separately. They interact, right? Exactly. And I think what's interesting about that is like, is our attention to the bad stuff. And of course we should have attention to the bad stuff because we want to prevent it. We want to stop it. But I think what we lose in these discussions, and especially like if we go back to talking about white masculinity and what white men can learn from um, other contexts um, in Africa and, and beyond, men today are not necessarily wedded to the Trump style of masculinity. Some are, and a, a, you know, a large number are, but I think it's a moment of potential contest as well. Like I see not everyone is as committed to the 1950s uh, breadwinner and housewife model as we sometimes imagine, especially in working class communities, because the 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 kind of academic research lends itself to this idea that that's what white working class men especially want. They hark back to those days when they could have their wife at home and or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's, it, again, it's kind of misleading. I think what's actually happening is a potential transformation of masculinity at the same time as there is stability in the masculine kind of hierarchy that produces gender inequality as well. But But there's potential to make things better if we look somewhere else, if we celebrate and normalize those good things that we see happening amongst those communities who have historically been um, painted to be not so good. The stuff I was seeing online was so extreme mm. and it didn't match my own life history. And it didn't match in most of the places where I go, you get kind of like displays of masculinity. But I expect those kind of like boys trying to be boys or that but in general, it's not that it's not what it's that traditional notion of like they, they want that power to have power. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more ambiguous than that now and i think Definitely. that's i think in that space is that's where possibility is like it's so it's so different right now definitely Do you have you read um luciana trimble's work come out swinging i'll put it on my list so she was like doing stuff like in gyms in new in new york right yeah and and how masculinities are bodied in gyms and she goes in the context of a post-industrial state when when guys have been disenfranchised or marginalized yeah, yeah, and they can't get back into the deployment. So they've tried to display all the skills that show that the qualities that they could work through their masculinity, i.e., yeah, 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 what yeah. they call body work. Yeah. So again, I see a lot of guys doing that. Like they they commit to that body that, that training regime. They're not really yeah, yeah, professionals. Yeah, yeah. All right. but it's to show that they have that discipline. 
I think it coexists. I think it coexists with mm-hmm. similar patterns of behavior amongst the like so-called elite middle classes as well. I, I do wonder, you know, if the attention to what working class people do in the absence of their work, so they're unemployed, so they might turn mm-hmm. to like their body as a project instead. I think that definitely mm-hmm. happens. But I don't mm-hmm. think it's only that because middle class, some middle class men are gym obsessed as well. And, it, and so I think that's to do with configurations of like, yeah, maybe there's, there's no other where, no other place to go and get your power or evidence your masculinity. I don't know. But I, but I think it's, I think it's complicated by the fact that, yeah, more like other groups do it as well. And I, I find that stuff super yeah. interesting. Uh, but our instinct is that people are in the gym all day, every day is probably people that don't have jobs. And, and as the research says, like that, they often find that stuff as well. I just think it's complicated, you know? When I'm seeing masculinity in, in, in those spaces, part of it is bonding about friendship, man. Mm-hmm. It's about hanging out most of it, right? I was reading for the literature, it's sometimes master and apprentice kind of role where the older heads are, are passing on this kind of wisdom. This, If you want to talk about this intergenerational conversation we're having, mm. I've learned a lot about people, about about the times times in this country that, that my parents wouldn't teach me about. So the older guys I'm speaking to, are telling you about the 80s and the late 70s, 80s, how it was for them growing up, not in a kind of watered down sense, in the street sense. Mm. And then conversely, the younger kids are telling them what they're, what they're doing now. And there's a conversation happening between mm. several different generations about what's happening on the street. So you've got old gangsters speaking to new and up-and-coming gangsters, which is <laughs> the weirdest thing. But you sit there and I sit there and I'm, I can hear this all. There's this... this intergenerational conversation around concept, what it means to be a man out in the streets these days mm. and you'll hear these kind of talk it's quite it's quite interesting really love hearing about microclimates of the gym Tiso and I really <laughs> like talking about it in that way but I always when we talk about it on the podcast when we have done on, on specified episodes mm. I do like to talk about that being conditional that space and like my own experience and lots of women like me experience in these places where men perform masculinity has not been one of safety Mm. and that's a real shame because like I would love to be able to access the types of bonding that you're talking about in your gym T in a way that wasn't conditional on me being sexually harassed basically (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I know that sounds really great, but that is the reality for me in gyms that are predominantly gyms that where men perform masculinity in this way. It, it, it's fucked up. The only way Chantel could come to my gym is if I was with her. And that is so fucking 20th yeah, century. It's fucked, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But equally, and just, to, and just to come in on Steve's point about the middle class, this is not something which is just what I've experienced in working class gyms. This happens... With all, this happens across the classes with all men, and I'd say po- probably more so with men that are not working class. So I think that what's really interesting is that these spaces where men perform masculinity, or these spaces that are for a particular type of man, can be spaces for development. And I think definitely you've you, the, the conversations that you talk to me that you've had with men in your GMT have been really revolutionary I think and have been really important for dismantling masculinity 100% but they are still conditional spaces and I just want to make sure that when we're talking about this stuff is that we do remember that women still can't yeah access it in the same way and that is it's a problem and it's sad to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So you're kind of like reinforcing that binary. And so there's, a, there's again, there's a complicated story. On the one hand, 
there's a possibility for men's connection, which they need because hegemonic masculinity standards ensure that men are lonely and disconnected and stuff. So like they need those spaces to be yeah. together. And it seems that the, an activity is the only way to do it. But they're, they're hyper-masculine spaces as well that are reliant, again, on a kind of hegemonic norm of heterosexuality and hypersexuality, which makes um, which makes those spaces uncomfortable and um, sometimes dangerous for women as well, which I think is exactly what you're describing, Chantal. So I think, yeah. And I'm a cis, I'm a cis black woman as well. Like, if any, I can be, I'm a light-skinned black woman as well. So I operate in certain spaces in a way that is privileged as well. Mm. So if I'm talking about my experience being complicated and sometimes very difficult in these spaces, yeah. then it, it's so much worse for other groups. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the kind of the ideal is that is that you and other women don't have that and that we have more mixed gyms basically, right. That they're not just like male dominated spaces, because I think that that, that binary and that division is, is where a lot of this stuff starts and kind of ends in really negative ways. But also the, the kind of an ideal just beneath that would be that, people in the gym would be able to call out the negative behavior of the kind of, um, Tisa and I were just talking about like the alpha male kind of conceptualization, right? So the, yeah. the kind of the big I am who's harassing a woman, but shouldn't be doing it. It would be great if one day that we, and it doesn't, and it shouldn't have to be about our size or stature to be able to use our own power to do it. But, but that, that person would be socially sanctioned. Like someone who's harassing you, we should be able to be like, Hey, you do that, yeah, no, 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 I do that, but listen, <laughs> but you know what it is, and I see. I'll be honest with you. It, it's again, if we, if you kind of ground it in that, if you ground masculinity in that, in that particular context, in that generational conversation, yeah. the older guys who have a bit more experience, a bit more respect for people, they're the ones that speak up, and it's, I guess, it's because of their age, people listen. In that context, age and experience it matters, and so yeah. the younger heads would look up to the older heads and generally fall in line and it's odd thing to see like this kind of interplay like if you if the young guys are by themselves in there like any women that are in there they're going to get a hard time Mm, and and the young guys don't fall in line until the older guys come into the play yeah yeah that's interesting and I think what's what's really problematic for me is that like young men learn that shit from somewhere right so it's interesting Mm. on the one hand we know that older men are responsible for like um, developing new modes of masculinity and, and helping them not be an asshole, basically. But actually, like some o- o- a little bit older men, like have taught these boys how to be men as well. So the the kind of the linkages between the generations are potentially can be productive, but it also can be a problem because yeah, boys learn how to be men via the media and via societal norms and all this and what's celebrated and what's not. But they also learn it from their peers and their older brothers and their dads and and, and so on. So it's a yeah, it's a complicated story. Honestly, like, because I feel like whenever me and T are talking about something, T will say something to me like, blah, 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 masculinity. And I'll be like, yeah, but what about <laughs> that? And then we're sort of like, like, it's so, it's so dialogical. But I'm still, I'm learning, I'm learning about this stuff more and more and more. I'm finding better ways to combat my own, yeah, feelings, yeah. possibly insecurities around talking but I about think, I think we all should. I think we all should be doing that. We all should be yeah. listening to women and talking to men and women and talking to different people to try and establish like this if, if our job is like to expose some kind of like air quotes truth right about what's actually happening we need to talk mm. to different people and not just rely on one account so yeah talking like and in my case writing with women as well I think is really important so when I'm working with my data I have someone else who like can keep me in check and and, and bring that kind of other um, other perspective through their own gendered socialization to to the material and be able to say like explore this in a way that's like 
you know, don't celebrate it too hard. Don't say, don't make those changes out to be better than they are, even if it's slightly productive. But at the same time, mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. Would we be able to talk about social generation theory? Let's try. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is something that, like me and Tiso, have been interested in for a long time. The podcast is basically built on this, these notions. And reading the paper that we'll put in the episode notes that you sent to us, we were just like, oh, okay. I'm always like, right, I'm like, Tiso's the Gen Xer, I'm the millennial, <laughs> let's, let's get into it. But actually, like, it's so much more complicated. It than definitely that. is. It definitely is. And I think, like, you know, this, this, the whole idea is a powerful and uh, powerful reminder of what sociology does, which it complicates stuff and gives us opportunity to nuance and, and, um, you know, think about some myth busting. So like all Gen Xers don't do something, right. And all Gen Ys don't do something else. And, um, that's the kind of broad kind of context of my critique. And actually the people that are into social generation theory as well, they, they at least say that, that they're also into that, that they don't think that all people inside a generation are the same. Um, and, and, our, and our first point of kind of unified critique is that the media often says uh, Gen Ys are lazy and, uh, you know, they don't want to work and they don't want to save up to buy a house and all this kind of crap without actually looking at the structural realities and possibilities that those, those people have. But also, and what's really, really important, they don't look at which part of Generation Y is having the hardest time. And I think that's what like sociology is. If I learn anything about sociology as an undergraduate and as a PhD student is that we should be asking those questions, the very like C. Wright Mills-esque basic question of which varieties of people come to succeed and which varieties of people don't come to succeed in any given moment, in any given historical period, right? So I think that's... that's... Can you just break down for the listeners? So this isn't even that easy either because there's a a mix of stuff. (laughs) But basically, so your baby boomer is uh, people who were born after the in the two decades after the second world war roughly and then from the mid to late 60s through to the end of the 70s beginning of the 80s is your gen xer and then your gen y is people that go up to kind of the mid 90s to late 90s and then there's gen z so that's a millennial yeah yeah that's that's a millennial millennial. and then there's gen z and they'll, they'll soon be a new um generation um although people are starting to use generation zoom in the university circles because like <laughs> everyone's on zoom all the bloody time yeah those um mechanistic kind of uh, frames that like chop people up into groups every 15 or 20 years like they tell us some story about the conditions in which people grew up for example so i'm a youth sociologist so i'm interested in those things like when people are young and in fact all the social generation proper kind of theory deep theory also says that um the conditions that uh, that we that we grow up in a bit like um, Bourdieu's habitus and stuff, you know, that they're really formative and uh, they they have a long lasting effect on our lives. But but the problem I think is that yeah, those generational framings risk overlooking inequality, and that's like my my big critique of of even the social generation theorists as well who actually believe in and respect the need to try and undo inequality. I think they miss it sometimes, and I think they miss it because they say this is how the contemporary context looks different to the previous context of 20 years ago. And that's, but that's only one level. That's like the historical kind of realities of that moment or the political realities of that moment. And I think, again, our job is to say, all right, so like COVID, right? Who's suffering the most? Like the, I, I don't believe in the concept of a COVID generation. And I don't believe it because it risks missing that, 
black young people are getting it more than, um, or actually black people as a whole have got COVID more often than white people. It misses that people who have lost their jobs are people that work in retail and bars. And who works there? It ain't kids that go to Oxford, right? And I'm, is not, I'm not being harsh against kids that go to Oxford. What My, my point is that there are very specific... You're allowed to <laughs> there, are very, <laughs> there are very specific inequalities. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, there are inequalities, right? And that's the point. We don't want to miss those inequalities. Who is suffering the most? And our job... Uh, I feel like I can feel my voice getting a bit passionate about this. But our job is to understand... <laughs> power and suffering and difference and if, if we're not going to talk about difference i don't know what we're doing like it, for me mm-hmm. just describing an epoch um it doesn't doesn't work that's not a sociology that works for me and i know i respect that people do it but i want to know who's struggling and why and who's who's managing to negotiate the difficult circumstances and why and why isn't everyone able to negotiate it in that way that it's you know it's it's easier mm-hmm. so and, and that's my my concern about generation theorizing I feel like when me and T talk about it or talk about our differences in, yeah, the time periods in which we've grown up, we're more sort of talking about it from a cultural point of view, but also like we we've spoken about it more recently on the podcast in terms of thinking about neoliberalism. So I don't remember, I don't, I was born in 1992, which means I don't know a time before the increased marketization of the Western neoliberalism. And but Tiso remembers observing things changing as a young person. And like also something that I've had to properly unlearn through doing this podcast, but also through doing sociology is like my romanticization of 1997 onwards, because I was a kid, I was at school at that time, and like I remember seeing like things change materially within my own home life but also within my school like whereas T sort of saw the foundations of what now got we've kind of looked at our generational differences in terms of culture but in term also in terms of thinking about the consequences or living through different stages of neoliberalism yeah, yeah for sure yeah but looking at it in the way that you talk about is so important because there'll be people that have got similar perspectives that grew up in different generations and I think sometimes that's where where like the media put us all against each other via generations it kind of misses the fact that some there's a lot of continuity there's a lot of similarity and a lot of those things that join us together is inequalities and has been through class struggle in particular yeah absolutely so that's the thing I I think both these things coexist right we know as you've described like uh, you two have different eras of when, in which you grew up and the, and the political moments of those times, the political kind of um, context of that time frames your experience of growing up. There's no question. I, I don't think we should ever deny that. But yeah, th- this issue of inequality and I think we're, again, where stuff goes missing, I, um, if we come back away from culture and think about the economy, is that kind of what I'm more obsessed with, but that's related to the, you know, the political sphere as well. Um, like Bev Skeggs, uh, who's amazing, as we all know, like she she points out that yeah, of course. Who doesn't? Like, she's my fave. Like, she's my absolute favorite. Like, <laughs> and she she points out that there, there's a well, there's a bit of an obsession with like in contemporary times, the contemporary generation they are all experienced this precarious labor market, this kind of stuff, and that's like it's important. But what Skeggs has been really good at pointing out is that working class people's lives have always been precarious. So the problem of like growing precarity seemed to become a bigger problem when some middle class people started to experience it as well. And I think, again, that kind of like understanding, as you said, the continuity of unequal experiences is probably 
the kind of thing that we want to be paying attention to. We're blown away by no. your way of articulating <laughs> things. It's really powerful. I guess how I always encountered it, like with Chantel's, I guess it is a cultural thing. When you're talking about generational, it de-anchors itself from other aspects that, that sit around it, like the economy or race. I think, the, I think the theoretical framework needs to link all those things together, ideally, right? That's what's missing. So when we speak about this, we, we can't engage on one or the other. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, I've been criticised for that kind of stuff as well, like for not um, not being willing to use generation framing uh, and, and to have this kind of fight about which is the master concept. Like, is it class and race inequality or is it generation? And I think it probably does need to be a bit more talking and thinking and linking them together as you say and actually like in my previous book I tried to do that a little bit again by thinking about like working class men's experience of a a labor market that's pretty much got nothing else to do apart from jobs in shops like it's no surprise to me that in that in that context in that generational context that generation of young men ain't like their dads they ain't saying oh I lament the fact that I can't go and work on Chatham dockyards like that's, it's gone, that stuff's gone and they don't know anything different. So that kind of generational framing of what's possible for everyone is um, is really important. Mm. But then again, you know, within that, always chopping up, always thinking about who succeeds and who doesn't, who struggles and who doesn't, I think is, is, is central to our sociological mission. Why do you think, Steve, that, and obviously the labour markets are important to understand with regards to this stuff, but why do you think that the media... And some sociologists focus a lot on generations in terms of housing, as in owning your own house, but also your salaries. So Danny Dorland's new book this year talks a bit about this, like the constant drive for progress in economic terms, but that, but that meaning about ownership and salaries and all that sort of thing. How do you think we can better dismantle these these conversations and how can we understand society mm through generations in a more holistic way because I get it because all my like so my generation are all struggling to buy houses because that's what they've been told is the right thing to do and they're there's you've got the more the mortgages now set up where grandparents can give like so boomers can give millennials money <laughs> like it's is I just sometimes feel like this way of talking about these things is really just takes up all the space yeah. basically but I understand because it's people's lives but but I think it's a diversionary tactic. Like talking about pitting young people against old people through the press is a diversionary tactic um, to stop talking about class power and who holds wealth and who holds power. I really, I really believe it. So even what you've just described, like the, the grandma giving the younger person the, the money for a deposit, like we, we know that happens. And we know that not, we, we know that not everyone, uh, it's not, yeah, some people can still buy a house in, in their early 30s or whatever. So it's, it's a smaller proportion than used to be the case. But um, if you look at home ownership across the ages, like it's declining across the age. Older people as well might not have their own home because they might have to sell it to, <laughs> to live. But um, like there were, it's the, the people who are basically working class and people, um, ethnic minority people are more likely to be in that category of not being able to buy a house on all of the age ranges. Like, and I, I think we, when we say that young people can't afford to buy a house or young people are too lazy, like it just, it, destabilizes any serious conversation about inequality across the life course and instead you know we you you we all know that not all people over 65 are rich and in fact if you in australia i wrote about this a couple of years ago but if you look at the data on who's actually living in poverty it's the same proportion of people over 65 as it is under 18 right so that that tells us that there are groups of people 
at both ends of that generational spectrum who, who are poor. And I think, again, that's the kind of conversation that goes missing when we say, ah, oh, young people today, they're never going to be able to afford a house. And it's an important conversation because I, well, you know, it depends what our politics are. We might not necessarily believe anyone should be able to buy a house, but um, mm-hmm. I, I think they should be equally able to buy a house as, as, the, as an older person, but also as the, another person in their age bracket. But what we know is the relative chances of buying a house, of moving out from your parents' home, rely on your access to the cultural and social and mostly economic resources that your parents and wider family have got. Like, that's really important. But Steve, that's a, that's that that message is too difficult to get across, man. You have got to simplify yeah. that, man. <laughs> it's easy to put old old versus young. That sells, man. That sells papers, man. Old versus young sells. But I feel like we even become. I was doing a. I was on a panel for a sort of community event the other day, and it was like a. It was framed as an intergenerational conversation, and it was an intergenerational conversation. And one of the things that I was finding troubling is that so many of the young people so they were a bit younger than me to be honest and so many of the older people were talking about each other in these very binarized ways as well so it's like we we opt into or people opt into the young versus old label even those of us that would like to be critical (laughs) about how society frames different groups and do you know what I have intergenerational conversations that are positive nearly every day and I know there are lots more people like me and I feel like it gets it gets a bad Mm. press like old people and young people and middle-aged people whatever give each other a bad press and actually there's so much possibility and hope that's happening and like it's just easy to say oh old people don't listen to us or young people haven't got a clue what they're talking about and it's like actually like there's some really positive things that are happening It, they just, it just doesn't get the press because it's not Oh, sexy. you took the words right out it's of my mouth. Sexy. I was going to say the same thing. Like, it's not a sexy story. Yeah, like a good, a good news story isn't yeah. sexy at all. But, but also what's interesting, I think, what you just yeah. described is reflective of history. Like young people have always been demonized by the, yeah. the, the adult generation <laughs> of their time. And, uh, you know, the people who are now like in the baby boomers who are like say that young people are lazy and stuff. When they were kids, when they were young people, when they were engaging in the politics of the 60s and the early 70s, like they were labeled as a problematic generation as well. So we get this kind of collective amnesia when we get to like, I don't know, X years old and we forget what it's like to be a young person. And that, that, that kind of stuff always happens. But as you say, it's a simple story. The simple young versus old is easier to sell. And people don't, um, our instinct isn't nuanced. Our, our instinct is making sense in categories and like, yeah, young people are a problem, old people are a problem, the dynamic, the battle between them for resources is a problem. But I, I'm yet to see um, yet to see a parent having a battle with their kid about giving them their, their money, you know, like families intergenerational along a familial lines are really yeah. strong. Then they're not at war with one another. Like classes are at war with one another over resources, but families aren't. Oh, well, well, post-2016, I think some of us are. Maybe, yeah, and that's the problem, right? Another generalisation by me. It's not helpful. We need nuance. (laughs) No, 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 no. I hear hear you, Steve, but I do do mostly agree. But I do think we are at this, a kind of post-Brexit, post-Black Lives Matter. I do think we're seeing some cracks on familial lines. Those, Those intergenerational, like, familial connections are really really important as well because again we think about covid we think about the post-brexit situation we think about austerity in the uk like 
we need our networks, we need our familial mm-hmm. networks, and we need to care for one another. Like that's that's the most important story, yeah. I think. Caring up and down and across the generations is yeah. the message that we need to sell rather than the battle between generations. Definitely. Steve, that was so brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Cheers. Absolutely brilliant. Listeners, we'll be back again See next week. And Bye. patrons, another episode for you now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 